Samuel. If you haven't yet, you can turn to 1 Samuel 23. We're back in the narrative we left just before Christmas. Um, again, our plan is to, is to finish out 1 Samuel, and then we'll, uh, we'll go to the New Testament, and we'll study the, the book of John, Lord willing. That's where we're headed next. But uh, we've got a ways to go still in, in 1 Samuel to finish this out. Um, and, and as we'll see today, there's, there's profit to be had in considering this narrative. Um, so again, if you haven't turned there, I'd encourage you to. We're going to focus on verses 19 to 29, uh, which is just the last half of the chapter, uh, basically, where we've got that situation with the Ziphites. Uh, so that's where we'll, we'll focus our energy, and, and we'll set the context for this passage uh, in this way. Uh, we can all identify with our need as humanity for a kind of framework that makes sense, for our experience, uh, makes sense of our experiences as we go through life. Uh, we long for a way to interpret our circumstances and our experience in a way that, uh, that infuses uh, what we go through with meaning, what helps us understand it. Uh, there's a Christian scholar by the name of Watkin. Uh, he recognizes this, and he, he makes a comment about his own period of time studying at the University of Cambridge. Uh, so, so in his time of study, over the course of engaging with a great deal of material, he references what he calls a wide array of cultural movements and social theorists, from feminism to post-colonial theory to psychoanalysis, Marxism, Foucault, and others. And he speaks of studying these thinkers and their theories, and as he did so, this is his concluding reflection uh, after, after coming through his studies. He said, all these theories began as something you looked at, reading and understanding their main texts, but they gradually became something you looked through, to bring the world into focus. So again, he's reflecting on his PhD studies at Cambridge. He read all of these theorists, and at the end, he says that those theorists uh, were, were not just something that you looked at. They weren't just something interesting to consider, but eventually what happened is as one of these systems maybe percolates to the surface, one of these systems of thought becomes something that you look through in order to bring the world into focus, in order to make sense of the world around you. And then Watkins, who's a Christian believer, he goes on to speak about how scriptures ultimately give us uh, that focus that we need, not these various ideologies. But, but he's initially making the point that as we pursue understanding as humans, what we gravitate toward is not a mere collection of ideas or ideals, but we gravitate towards something that can make sense of the world around us. We, we long for this lens that will, that will bring the world into focus, as he puts it. Uh, so along these same lines, uh, though over 120 years ago, the Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper, he commented on this same need in a series of lectures he gave at Princeton in 1898. So in those lectures, Kuyper spoke about how being human meant that we need a life system. Kuyper said that we need a way of looking, uh, uh, that we need a way of looking out at our life that brings unity and meaning to all that we are and do. So that was that was Kuyper, which sounds a lot like. Watkins, but, but as we reflect on these observations, like, uh, like, we, like we've just heard, what we do is we, we see a lot of validity in what is said, and that as people we understand we need a lens through which to view what goes on in the world around us, through which to interpret the circumstances of our own lives in a way that, uh, that brings meaning and makes sense of the things that we experience. We need a lens that brings the world into focus, and we search for that. Sometimes we look for it in, in political or social isms. We, we search for an ideology, maybe, to give us meaning and purpose. 
Or we can pursue this through, through career even. We can try to find value and meaning attached to our professional success. It, it, it makes the most sense of my life if I'm elevated to a certain position or if I'm making a certain amount of money. Or, or we hope to find it in family life that looks a certain way or physical wellness. We, we can try on all kinds of different lenses that we hope will ultimately bring all the experiences of our life into focus. But as we go on with, uh, with various attempts at this, we recognize that ideologies, they ultimately fail us. And careers, they can backfire on us. Family life can look way different than we expect as time goes on. All these lenses don't ultimately give us the kind of clarity that we need. However, as we come to the Scriptures, we find something different. Because in the Scriptures, we have the revealed Word of God. We have a lens given to us by the Creator of life Himself through which we can make sense of all we experience and all that goes on around us. Uh, and, and maybe that and maybe that touches on something that's, that's weighing on you particularly this morning, even as we think about these things. Because in the face of, of present circumstances, or in the face of, of, of what's coming in the future, or even as we reflect on things that have gone on historically in our life, we can very much have a sense of fogginess about the whole thing. We can feel our need for some clarity, for a way to look through the experiences we've had in order to make proper sense of them, not least of all in light of what we know to be true as followers of Jesus. We can, we can feel a sense of a, of a lack of certainty. How, how do I make meaning out of, our, out of my experience? These things have happened to me, or these things are, are going to happen, or I'm experiencing these things right now, and I just don't know what this means for my life. The world, in that sense, is out of focus. And while our passage this morning uh, doesn't have all the answers, this section of verses in 1 Samuel does provide one of those critical scripture perspective incidents that helps make sense of our experience as we move through our lives of faith. Now we say this with regularity, we know it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We can't say that enough. There, there is no one passage in the Bible that gives us everything we need. That's why God's given us the whole book. We need the whole book. But a section like we're going to study this morning does give us some particular help along these lines of, of developing a, a lens for the world around us. This, this narrative passage gives us a big piece of how to view life in a very realistic way, in a way uh, that ultimately doesn't shy away from the hardship that we endure, but in a way that is ultimately anchored in the hope that comes uh, through knowing the Lord of life himself. And one of the reasons we know this event is verses 9, uh, 19 to 29. One of the reasons we know this is uh, here for, for the help of God's people in a broader sense is because David wrote a song about this experience. This song we read for our call to worship today, Psalm 54. Uh, because as David's done on other occasions, and we've even looked at some of those, uh, based on what happens to him, David will write a psalm. And, and he wrote that out of, out of the set of circumstances that's here. But we know he didn't write it merely as an exercise in personal prayer, though it is that. And we know David didn't, though no doubt it was relieving to experience a kind, of, a kind of private spiritual catharsis, though no doubt it was relieving to write the poem as he wrote it. Uh, but one of the reasons we know that this is here to help us in our more broad experience as we follow the Lord Jesus, one of the reasons we know that is because David wrote his own poem about this experience and then he addressed it to the choir director. That's part of why we read the, the beginning of that psalm that Ben read that in, in, our, in our call to worship this morning. Who is this whole song addressed to? Well, it's to the choir master. It's addressed to the one who's going to be leaving, leading all of God's people in corporate worship. 
And David addressed it that way because he recognizes, he knows that there is a generalized truth in his own experience that the people of God are meant to identify with more broadly. So the choirs of Israel can sing a song about this event in public worship, even though they've never probably personally been chased by Saul. Right? We've never personally been chased by Saul, but have you ever been betrayed by somebody who should have sheltered you and instead turned on you? Have you ever had an experience like that? You, you see, there's something in this experience here that David's going to go through that we can all attach to. So in 1 Samuel 23, 19 to 29, in our verses, we, know, we not only have an account of David's most narrow escape from Saul to date. This is as tight as things have, have gotten for David so far. So we have this narrow escape that goes on. But in this event, we also have this lens. We have, we have a, a broad lens through which we're helped to make sense of aspects of our own life. At the end of the day, a passage like this uh, simply helps bring the world into focus for us as Christian believers. And so, and so we'll, we'll get into the text this morning, and, and I would encourage you to follow along as, as we do. Uh, really, we can't say this too much either. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We need to say that with regularity, and we all also want to say it's, it's very good to follow along as we study the Bible. Because we always want to be checking and making sure that whatever's coming uh, from up here is actually in the, in the Bible. And, and not just for the sake of fact-checking, but because we want to be able to hold fast to what is true and internalize this truth for ourselves. So as we study the Bible, we want to be students and, and have it open in front of us and keep a finger on the text as we go. Uh, that's why we always have a few Bibles out back, even though I know everybody has it on their phone. But it makes me feel better to put a few Bibles out back. If nothing else, it reflects that priority. Um, so, that, that's, that's enough about that. But through David's experience here, we have this, this lens that can bring uh, some kind of clarity to our, own, to our own experience. So, let's begin in verses 19 to 23. We'll start there, and we'll think about those verses under the, the broad heading of the nature of hardship. The nature of hardship. Um, if we're going to properly understand life, there is no way around the fact that we need proper categories for the adversities that we face. And adversity is never single-sided. Hardship is always multifaceted. We know that from our own experience. And, and we know that David is no stranger to a kind of multifaceted adversity himself. Uh, because we remember where we are in these events. It's been a little while since we've been studying 1 Samuel. But we remember that David is the anointed king of Israel. So the Lord has rejected Saul as king because of Saul's disobedience. And David is now the rightful king over God's people by God's anointing through the prophet Samuel. Uh, but even though Saul knows this to be true, he's refusing to give up the throne. And instead, he's doing what kings do who, who refuse to give up. He's trying to kill the one who would come and take his place. So David is, is very much on this, or Saul is very much on this murder campaign, uh, seeking to take out David. And, and we remember from the narrative up to this point that things have been very difficult for David already. So he's been no stranger to hardship. Uh, there have been a few encouragements along the way, but it's been, it's been pretty rough for David. Uh, not only uh, did Saul throw spears at him when he was trying to be a comfort to Saul, so that's, that's not a very good place to start. But as time went on, Saul actually sent hitmen to David's own house where he was married to Saul's own daughter. So, so Saul's been out to get David in that way. Saul's murdered priests. Do you remember that event? In fact, he murdered a whole town just for the help one priest in that town gave to David. And, and then in the beginning of this chapter, David, uh, he helps folks 
uh, from this town of Keilah like we heard about. David helps these folks against the, uh, the Philistines who are raiding them. But because Saul's coming and because Saul is so threatening, as David is inquiring of the Lord, the Lord tells him, you know, if Saul shows up and you're still there, those townspeople are going to give you up. They're going to betray you. Even though you did all this work to rescue them, if Saul shows up, they're going to give you up. So, so David's already had to deal with this kind of betrayal. And, and, so, and so here's David, uh, very much experiencing a great deal of difficulty. There's no peace for him. He's on the run. And, and he's on the run with a band of, of, of a few hundred who've gathered with him, uh, who, by the way, are the outcasts from society. So that's who's, who's in the company of David. David and his band of outcasts, they're far from any kind of safety, any kind of comfort, and, and they're being hunted by Saul and, and, his, and Saul's thousands of soldiers. So things have already been hard. Th- things are, are very bad to begin with. And then as we get into our verses today, it's as if the heat on David's trouble is turned up just a few more clicks. Uh, And and maybe you've had that experience. You're you're in the middle of going through a uniquely trying time. Your faith is intact. You're trusting in the Lord during that time. You're hoping for relief, but it's rough. And And then right around the next corner, just when you feel like some relief would really be in order right about now, oh God, things don't get better, they get harder. They get more burdensome. Things are more strained, and we've, we've known those kinds of experiences. And, it, and it's, not, it's, not a good, it's not a good feeling. But that's what's happening to David here. Things get worse. And, and as they do, we learn something about the nature of hardship here. So, so in verse 19, we read that some Ziphites came to Saul to tell him that, Saul, to tell him that, uh, that David is, is currently hiding in their territory. And not just that, but the Ziphites actually give Saul a whole bunch of details so he can find David. A whole bunch of geographical details. So the Ziphites give Saul striking coordinates, if you like. And then in verse 20, they, they not only give a, a whole bunch of, of location information to Saul about David, but they extend this intense invitation to Saul to come and get David, and they promise to help. So just listen to a, a literal translation of the Hebrew text of, of verse 20 with the Ziphites, what they say to Saul. Listen to this. They say, for every desire of your soul, king, you must come down. For every desire of your soul, king, you must come down. Come kill David. We know where he is. We know you really want to. We'll help. You indulge your murderous desires, and we're going to, and we're going to take him out. Every desire of your soul, just come get him. We want to help with this. It's just insidious. It's nasty. To which Saul replies, with gratitude and a spiritual blessing. It was just, just, you can't believe how messed up this is. Verse 21, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have shown concern for me. Saul shows gratitude and offers them this, this spiritual blessing, which just makes our skin crawl as we read that. And then, and then Saul tells the Ziphites to get even more details about David's location, because it turn, as it turns out, Saul and his thousands of soldiers keep not catching David because he's sneaky. So Saul wants to make sure he's got as much detail, as much information about David's whereabouts as possible. That location really needs to be dialed in, he says to them. And then Saul says in the end of verse 23, if it turns out, David, if it turns out he really is in the region, I'll search for him among all the clans of Judah. So, so Saul is, is, is all in with this program. Let's find David, let's kill him. Which really doesn't sound like anything all that new from Saul except that it's just worth pointing out how the significance of David's hardship is is both highlighted and especially heightened here. Okay, so just just think through this with me for a moment. David's hardship is highlighted and heightened in this this beginning section. Uh, 
first of all, in these verses, David's physical deprivation is underscored. So there are three different terms here that point to the fact that David is hiding in terrain that is basically not habitable terrain. Uh, we're told David is in Horish first. We've actually run across that word before. And if you remember, that's not actually a proper noun in Hebrew. It just refers to a heavily wooded wilderness area. Okay, it's, it's not the place you go build a town or even go for a camp out. It's, it's a bad place. And then, and then to narrow it in, David's in the hill country uh, of, of uh, Hakila. And that location is, is, is a known wilderness area in this region. And then, just to get even more narrow, he's just south of Jishimon. Again, that's not a proper noun either. It's just the word for wasteland in Hebrew. Okay, so, so if we put all that together, the, the Ziphites know where David's hiding, and he's hiding out in a place that's far from comfortable. F physically, David's in a wasteland. He's not in a habitable region. Okay, so if we think about that in, in terms of his physicality, materially, David, David is in affliction in that, in that sense. His hardship is marked by physical conditions of that nature. But it's not just that that marks out his hardship. Because the text shows us that David's hardship is also intensely personal. In fact, even just based on the psalm we read, we can say it's emotional hardship even. Uh, because this is now the second time in this chapter David faced betrayal. And in both cases, so with the, the potential be, uh, betrayal from the Kelites in the first part of the chapter, and now with the, with the overt and premeditated and very intentional betrayal with, from some Ziphites, in both cases, these are people from David's own tribe. They're from the tribe of Judah. So, so David isn't just betrayed. He's betrayed by his own people. And, and one of the ways we know this is particularly painful for David is that in Psalm 54, where he's talking about these people who are against him, he calls them strangers. Okay? Strangers rise up against me. It's painful for him. Th these are people of Judah. These are David's extended tribal family here. But David says in Psalm 54, strangers rise up against me and violent men intend to kill me. So, so those who should keep me safe, right? it's like I don't know them at all. So, so for David, it's a physical hardship as he lives in the wasteland. And also it's, it's deeply personal in, in terms that, uh, that his own group of people, his own people, are, are not just against him, but they're actually collecting more and more intelligence to make sure that they can give up David's location really, really, really effectively. So, so this, is, this is hard. And then one last thing, we, we also have, have all this hardship commended by this depraved spiritual blessing from King Saul. Remember how, how Saul says, may you be blessed by the Lord to, to these betrayers. So going against David is something that King Saul says deserves the blessing of God. Even though we know that Saul knows that's a lie. We know that. That God does not bless this. But, but so it goes with manipulators of spiritual truth and authority, doesn't it? Saul invokes the blessing of the Lord upon people who will help him in his wicked schemes. That's extremely twisted. So, so this is David's condition of hardship. Deprived physically, he's betrayed relationally, and, and all of that is couched in this depraved royal stamp of spiritual approval. It's all baptized into orthodoxy. So this is, this is what David is now facing. So, so with that in mind, we, we remember how we started. We, we started by saying, this passage is one that gives us a lens through which we can make sense of life. And, and it's not a particularly uh, sunny picture that's painted here. But, but let me ask you this. Have you ever faced hardships 
that deeply affect your physical and material well-being? Have you ever been betrayed by those who should have sheltered you and been on your side and instead worked for your harm? Have you ever had harm come against you with the twisted stamp of religious approval? Have you ever had all three of those things come at once? Maybe you have. And then how about this? Have you ever thought that because those things are happening, that maybe you don't really belong to God after all? That's often the conclusion we can come to when hard circumstances like these assail us. With, with all this stuff that's going on as I'm reflecting on my life, even as I especially can reflect on some twisted spiritual categories that have come and brought me additional harm, maybe when, when all is said and done, I'm just, I'm just not God's. I just don't belong to Him. But, but here's where this help comes in from a passage like this. David isn't lost to God. David is God's anointed king. And this kind of stuff can happen to God's anointed king. Physical trials, relational betrayal, spiritual twisting. These things don't mean David isn't God's. And it doesn't mean you're not God's either. After all, uh, we think about this in relationship to the experience of the Lord Jesus himself. What was Christ's own experience? Well, he faced the devil's direct temptation in the wilderness. Physical suffering there. He was betrayed by his own people, even to death on a cross. And then, and then in that murderous event, what was the spiritual perspective from the authorities of the day? Well, crucifying the innocent Jesus was absolutely baptized into religious orthodoxy. So, so if you face these things, we can just know we're not alone. We're not forgotten by God. In fact, we're actually in the good company of David, and not just David, but you're actually in the good company of the Lord Jesus himself. So, so while this is, isn't a particularly sunny thought, this does affect our point of view. It gives us lenses for our experiences because hardships can increase and they do so exponentially at times and, and they can do so even at the very worst time in ways that can even be bathed in destructive religious speak. But that doesn't mean you're removed from God and His purposes and His love and His preserving power. In fact, David, David, it caused him to recognize his need for God all the more. He's even more affirmed in his trust as he goes through this. Psalm 54, verse 4, David prays and he doesn't say, where are you, God? Now, there's not a place for that. David will do that another occasion. But in this particular occasion, David doesn't pray and say, where are you, God? Instead, Psalm 54, verse 4, you remember what he confesses? God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. That's what's true about me in the midst of all these things I'm dealing with. And that helps us with our lens. To know something about the nature of hardship in a life of faith, this helps us view things properly. And then, and then from there, uh, let's move into verse 25, uh, 24 to 26. And, and just as we get in there, we, can, we might as well say it from the beginning, it's not getting any better. It's not getting any better, um, which, which we have to love how realistic the biblical narrative is. Uh, things aren't getting any better. First, we have the nature of hardship. Now, we have a movement toward grave danger. We'll call it that. A movement toward grave danger. As if he's not already in danger, but there's, a, there's movement in verses 24 to 26. And, and, and we need to emphasize that because in this next section, and actually for the, in, in the next one as well, in the one following this, every single verse contains the basic Hebrew word for movement. There, there's, a, there's a repetition here that's emphasized. So, so just watch how, how it unfolds, and I'll emphasize it for us just, just so, we can, so we can catch it. So verse 24, the Ziphites, what do they do? They move ahead of Saul. So what are they moving ahead of Saul to do? Well, they're going to get more intel so that they can know exactly where David is so Saul can find him and kill him. So that's dangerous that they're moving that, that way. 
And then during this time, we're told David and his men are in this wilderness location. And then in verse 25, Saul and his men move to look for David. So the additional uh, information must have come back, and Saul and his army, they move to go get David. In that verse, David has his own intelligence network, it seems, so he goes down to the rock, uh, which is going to get a name a little later on, and that will be important. Right now, it's just called the rock. Um, But Saul hears about it. He pursues David there, so this chase is on. There's dangerous movement. And then in verse 26, Saul moves along uh, one side of the mountain while David and his men move along the other side. So we can picture this this fleeing situation here. It's full of energy. This chase is on. The intelligence was good. Uh, David's making haste to get away from Saul, the text says. And at the end of verse 26, Saul and his men are closing in on David and his men in order to capture them. So you just have this extreme intensification of movement in these verses. And it's, and it's, it's a dire situation. It's, it's a grave situation. It's deadly. It's very suspenseful, actually, as we read the narrative. So, so the Ziphites move to get more information on David's location. Then Saul's moving after David, getting closer and closer. David's moving with his men to flee from Saul. But Saul and his men aren't just moving around the mountain by the end. It's interesting. The last verb here, it's actually much worse. Saul's men are closing in. That's how the CSB reads. Literally, Saul's men are circling in on David. So Saul's men finally make the the approach by surrounding the mountain that that David is trying to to get away around. Uh, In in other words, there's just just no way of escape for David. He's he's being surrounded um, by the end of all this. He's he's going to be done. And then we feel that, that pressure as we move through the passage. There's a sense in which this is as close as it's ever been for David. And by all accounts, up to this point, it seems like there's, there's no way out. It's all over. Right? Saul's going to get him. Uh, so, so Dale Ralph Davis, he makes a comment that sympathetic readers close their eyes at this point. They refuse to watch. Just like that one scene you know is coming in a movie and you just can't, you just can't watch what's going to happen. That's what's going on here. There's no way out. Grave movement against David. It must be over for him now. So we'll stop there for just a second. And then we think about this as a lens with relationship to our own experience. I I wonder if you've ever known grave movements of destruction to be coming after you. It could be a relationship burden maybe that just feels like it's going to be the end of you. Could be a temptation to particular sin that, that seems to press and press and press just until you can't breathe. You feel like there's no way to escape. It's circling around you. Maybe it's a burden, a historical sorrow, a pain that's weighing so heavy that you just know destruction is going to be your final word. It's over. It feels like all's going to be lost. You know, you've made it out before, maybe, but this one is just too much. This temptation, this trial, this pressure, circumstance, sorrow, sin, whatever it might be, this time it's going to get me. It's circling the mountain and I'm totally surrounded. We can experience that. Here's here's something to consider. Uh, That is not a foreign experience in the life of a Christian believer either. It can be very disorienting. It seems like this pressure that's closing in on me, that's circling around me, is the one that's finally going to get me. And maybe it seems like it's going to even end my relationship with God. I won't be able to persevere given all that's going on. I'm, I'm really lost to the whole thing. That can be discouraging. Especially when we think about what we know what God has already said. Remember what God said to David through the narrator, at least the narrator's told us, verse 14 of this chapter, that Saul's not going to get David. Saul's not going to. But he's circling the mountain. Right? Jonathan said the same thing to David. My, my father's not going to be able to get you. You're going to rule the kingdom. But they're still circling the mountain. 
God has promised David's well-being. God has promised our well-being. We will not ultimately be separated from his love, and yet everything can get so tangly. We're surrounded. I know what God said, but I'm looking around, and there is no way of escape out of this. Getting to the point of feeling this way is not foreign to our Christian experience. These things that press us, again, it does not mean that God is done. It doesn't mean that you're not God's. It doesn't mean it's all over. It means that you're experiencing danger that pursues you, no doubt, and it's dire, it's critical, it's painful, it's dangerous. But once again, it also means that you're in good company. King David experienced it, and so did King Jesus. On Good Friday, the tomb was sealed. He was surrounded by death. But that's never the final word. Are Saul's orders to surround David the final word? No, God's word of preservation remains the final word in David's life. Which actually brings us to the last verses. Um, this, this Hebrew word for movement, it continues into verses 27 and 28, except that in these verses, everything, change, everything changes. So just look at the, at the last verses there, uh, 27 to 29 in total. Um, and in those last verses, it's not a movement toward grave danger like we've been seeing, but now it's actually a movement toward life. It's a movement towards relief. So, so verse 27, out of the blue... As Saul and his men are closing in on David, a messenger comes to Saul and says, now here's our word, move quickly, he says, move quickly, the Philistines are raiding. Now, just think, think back on Saul's recent behavior, his recent activity as king. Normally, news that the Philistines are raiding the land doesn't have any effect on Saul whatsoever. Saul is the king, as the, as, as the one who, who's now rejected, but as the king, it is his job to defend Israel from her enemies, but Saul's been a bad king in this way. We know just from this chapter, David's been doing the defending against the Philistines. Saul hasn't been doing his job. So at first we read this and we think, well, that doesn't help. Saul doesn't care about the Philistines on his best day, except that in this case, in verse 28, Saul does what he never does. He gives up on David and he moves, there's the word again, to engage the Philistines. Maybe they got a little close to Saul's house. Who knows? But ultimately, we do know who's behind all of this. Because when it seems like there's no way of escape behind all of this, the Lord who's promised that Saul would not kill David is active to preserve David. It seems like there's no way out, and yet the Lord provided, even through these dark circumstances of a Philistine raid, David is preserved. And, and, and you know one of the ways the narrator gives us a clue about the Lord's help? He does this just subtly. Hebrew narrative is just so masterful, but, but you have to love how he does it. Here's how, here's how the narrator just gives us a little reminder of whose hand is really in this. We, we're told the rock's name that they were going around in verse 28. We're finally given the name. And the name, it's translated here as the rock of separation, which makes sense because there David went one way, Saul so went the other way. Um, but the root word of, of that word there to describe this rock is the same word used to describe the smooth stones that David used to kill Goliath, which is a big deal because that word is only used twice in the whole Bible, Goliath and here, the smooth stones. So you slip on a smooth rock, so that's why you're separated from whoever you're with, that's why it's translated this way, right? They're smooth, slippery stones, but we just can't miss the narrator's subtle play on words, and that just like David was delivered from the giant Philistine with the smooth stone, now ironically, in the providence of God, he brings deliverance for David around another smooth stone. So, so, so the Lord so moves in ways that are unexpected, but his anointed is ultimately delivered. Who would have thought that a Philistine battle would get Saul's attention and bring David's deliverance? It hasn't gotten Saul's attention the whole way along, but now it does. And David, right on the edge of death, he's saved, which is amazing in and of itself. 
But actually, that's not even the best part. Because David isn't just saved by the skin of his teeth here. We have another movement word in verse 29. You remember that last section where it went move, 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 and then Saul's circling? Here in this section, we have move, move, move. Verse 29, from there David rose. David is actually the ascension word. David ascended and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. And that ascended element is something that we know is even in David's mind. Because if you remember uh, from, from Psalm 54 in our call to worship, uh, when David ends that psalm, what does he say? The very last line, I look down on my enemies. David rises. Right? And he rises, he goes up to the strongholds of En Gedi, which is, which is not just another place in wilderness wasteland. En Gedi is a spring in the hill country overlooking the Dead Sea. In fact, En Gedi itself is an extraordinary spring uh, ca- causing all the land around it to be used as a, as a vineyard area later on in Israel's history. Um, in, interestingly, En Gedi is referenced in a figurative way in Song of Solomon, where the woman describes the man she loves as henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of En Gedi. So, so the man the woman loves in that poem is a place of refreshment and safety for her. Later, the prophet Ezekiel speaks of provision from the springs of En Gedi to describe the Lord's restoration of His people. It points to the springs of living water that that reference ultimately what's going to happen in the new creation through Christ. So so, so you see what's happening here as we tie things together in the Scripture storyline with the images and figures that we're given. Uh, What's happening here is, is that we're given this lens to view our experience of faith that is ultimately very much filled with hope and a rise to life. So we know in our experience of faith that it can be a wilderness at times. It can be wasteland circumstances. It can be times of betrayal. It can even be times where spirituality and religiosity itself is used as as manipulative and and, and destructive effects in our lives. But with all of that, while difficulty can move against us, even things that would destroy us can be circling all of that, it's never the final word For the people God has set his love upon. The final word is rest and refreshment and safety. This this can be the way things go throughout our lives. There's David rising ultimately to the oasis of En Gedi. This can be the way things go in our lives. We can experience this process actually many times over in different ways throughout our life at at, at a certain level. Right? David did. So there's difficulty, there's hardship which gives way to relief. We were reading Psalm 23, it'd be passing through the valley of the shadow, then into the green pastures of provision. We can experience this in different ways throughout our lives as we we follow Jesus. Through this lens, we can set our expectation to those things. But even more than that, there's an ultimate sense in what's what's being pictured here. Because uh, because as we think about how things ultimately go in in our lives, from the wilderness of this world, preserved through the danger by God's providential care, to the ultimate spring of eternal life, it, it, it goes this way for us as an extraordinary eternal blessing. We recognize this is God's purpose for us and His trajectory for our lives. And it is our trajectory uh, for life under God, knowing Him, because ultimately it's the path that the Lord Jesus not only purchased for us, but walked before us. Jesus is the one who came into the wilderness of this world, didn't He? Jesus is the one who endured that kind of hardship. Jesus is the one who was betrayed. He was overrun by those who, would, who wanted to see Him gone and destroyed and done. But what is the final word in Jesus' life? Well, the final word in Jesus' life is not the circling death. The final word in Jesus' life is the rising to new life ultimately meaning that the final word in our life is the same. 
And so we recognize that this is an enormous help for us just as we consider uh, what's going on in the midst of our days. The Lord who promises to keep us, who promises uh, that nothing can ever take us out of His hand. He's the Lord who preserves us in these kinds of ways. And that doesn't mean life doesn't have its significant hardships, but it does mean that the end is secure and the end is an oasis of hope. And so we just think about life. We think through this lens. Wilderness, yes. Preserved in danger. Who here can recount a time in their life that the Lord has uniquely preserved them during times of significant difficulty? Rise to eternal refreshment. This is what the Lord does for us. He brings us back to life. It's the way of David. It's the way of Jesus. And it's ultimately the way of all those who put their trust in Christ who is the King who ascends. And so as we think about these things, we find ourselves in the narrative. We can... Uh, we can ask ourselves the question, where, where, where do we find ourselves in this process right now? Maybe it is physical difficulty, material difficulty. Maybe it is facing the betrayal of those who should be caring for us. Maybe uh, temptations to sin are pressing hard after you. Even even feels like they're surrounding you, going to strangle you. What does these things happen? We're, we're trained by the Scriptures to look to Christ as the one who's gone before, the one who makes a way. Because really, in the end of all this, we can look to Christ and make David's confession our own, whether you feel it or whether you don't. Whether you feel it or whether you don't. Truth is truth. And Psalm 54, verse 4 rings true. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. I may be going through this right now, and as far as I can see, I'm done. If I were to ask, give my estimation of the situation, I might even say the Lord is done with me, but I'm not going to let that be the estimation because I know that's not true. What is true for me through Jesus is God is my helper, the Lord is the sustainer of my life. Those words are our lens for viewing the totality of our days. God is my helper, the Lord is the sustainer of my life. In fact, why don't we just try that together? I'll say it and you repeat it, okay? God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. Okay, your homework is to go home and say that louder. Right? But, but, that, but that's what we say. And as we, as, as we reflect on that truth, not based on how we feel in the moment, but based on the reality of who God is and what He's done for us in Christ, as we reflect on the truth, uh, we find the, uh, the strength and the endurance to pass through circumstances of deep darkness, knowing that ultimately the Lord is the one who's going to preserve us. So we're thankful to God for His Word, which gives us this help. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that we would be encouraged and uplifted by Your truth. We know as we look at our own experience, we need a lens that reflects what You say is true and the work that You promised to do. So Father, as we may face various trials here this morning. Various difficulties are present in our life. Various challenges, various uncertainties. Uh, we make this our good confession that you're the one who sustains our life. You're the one who is our helper. Uh, we don't rest in any other devices ultimately. We don't rest in any other plans, anything of our own making. We rest in the fact that even when we can't see the, the way out, you're the one who makes a way. That you're the one who's made a way for us ultimately through the Lord Jesus. And we desire to rest in that eternal care this morning under this truth. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.